Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode, and of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome to episode 10 of Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Teresa. I'm Juliette. And we're going to tell you about some horror movies today. At least I think so. That's, that's, what, we're, that's I mean, what we do. That is what we do. Yes. Yeah. And as a note to listeners, coming up, we are going to be talking about horror films in a different environment. Uh, we're really psyched that we're going to be joining um, Ken Sledge of the Sledgehammer Horror YouTube channel to talk about our first horror films. That's coming up and we will link you up on social media when that video is out. If you aren't already, follow us on Instagram at Attack of the Final Girls and on Twitter at Final Girls Pod to get all of your Attack of the Final Girls updates. And oh my god, we have so many. We can't talk about all of them yet. Yeah. Um you'll you'll just have to follow us on on Twitter at the very least, because Twitter's easier to update. We were just got done talking about how Twitter, like also I think the algorithm is just better, but that's just me. That's just my experience. Yeah. When you work in a primarily audio medium, uh, Twitter is a little easier than trying to figure out how to make the pictures make sound on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're like, how do I upload a GIF again? Because yeah. uh, so much of my communication is GIF-based. It's a problem. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like three-fourths of our episode planning is just in GIFs. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> because... Gifts can convey what words alone cannot. It's so true. It's so true. At some point, we should. <laughs> Here's an idea for for bonus content. At some point, we should make a supercut of gifts and make people guess the episode that we were talking about. <laughs> oh, that's great! Or a movie, like a movie challenge in four gifts, and then and then figure out what movie we're talking about. Okay, in four gifts. Okay, that bonus would be a content good one. <laughs> coming to the internet near you yes oh man we got bonus stuff coming up We've we got do have some... bonus stuff yeah yeah 2022 is the year of attack of the final girls guys i think so Juliet and i are coming at you we are it's nuts so thank you to everybody who's listening because holy crap <laughs> yeah yeah we're here we're in the double digits we didn't get cupcakes guys yeah Sorry. the big one oh i i think both of us were just kind of like yeah, we'll just keep doing this until like one of us forgets or whatever. And then it like actually became a thing. And yeah, now we're like, of. oh my God, there's 10. Oh my God, we, all, we almost have 650 followers. Just trying <laughs> yeah. to hold on. <laughs> so yay. Thanks for everybody who's listening. Um, but to get back to our regularly scheduled content, um, we're, we're talking about uh, The Cursed today, which is a movie that just came out. Came out in 2021. Um, we just saw it a little earlier this year. But also, since it's still, like, tail end pandemic time, it says it came out in 2021 at the International Film Festival. It didn't actually come out here until February of this year, of 2022. Right. And its 2021 film festival release was under its prior name, oh. which was Eight for Silver. Which I'm kind of mad that they changed the name of it. because It's a I think, pretty great name. Yeah, Eight for Silver is actually a better name. And I think I would have appreciated the film more going in. But anyways, so The Cursed, it's a a rural kind of like, it's supposed to be set in France, but all of your cast of characters are British. So we've got like this rural 19th century British um, setting. 
but we're we're kind of talking about a possibly supernatural menace and I'm going to be purposefully vague like mm-hmm. going into this because there's two schools of thought. One school of thought is like just go ahead and say the quiet part out loud, which I think Juliet was kind of like hoping to go into the movie like that. So yeah. she had it spoiled for her by the concession stand guy. Curses. I'm shaking my fist. <laughs> we can never we can never tell the concession stand guy about this podcast. <laughs> Cause he'd be like on the one hand, like he'd probably be our biggest fan, but on the other hand, he'd also be our biggest fan. <laughs> he would probably try to shoehorn his way into being a guest host. <laughs> Y'all see that movie? Let me spoil it for you real quick. <laughs> so Juliet tried to go in not knowing the the like hook of this movie. Right. Yeah. We had seen the trailer um a couple weeks prior to seeing it, and we were both kind of like, oh, that looks interesting and weird. And I was of the mind I had only seen the trailer once, and I was just like, ooh. It could be one of several things, like the the sort of monster or, you know, the big horror in mm-hmm. this movie. It could be one of several things, and they could go one of several directions with this. Like, And I was excited to kind of see how it unfolded. And, of course, the concession guy was just like, yeah, I looked, I looked online, and it was about this. And I was just like, cool. <laughs> I will take my popcorn now. <laughs> Thank you. Please never talk to me again. Yeah. See, I knew that going in. Uh-huh. Like, I I had seen a lot of other people discussing it. And I don't necessarily think that people assume that that was going to be a spoiler. But they do kind of wait a really long time in the movie to do the reveal of that. Yes. So it was not good. No, no. I know was... you, and, you and your partner were like, dang it. Yeah, yeah. Especially because, I mean, so I guess for our purposes here, since we do, you know, we are cool with spoiling things, do we want to just say what it... Yeah, okay. yeah, go ahead. Okay, so this is a werewolf movie, and it takes the sort of werewolf curse legend in a slightly different direction than we typically see, though definitely hearkening back to uh, the wolfman and, and the sort of typical universal portrayal of a werewolf. That said, like, for me, the trailer was really fun because I was like, is it a real werewolf? Is it somebody dressing up in furs and donning these silver teeth that are very iconic to the movie and the advertising and using the iconography of werewolves to scare people? Is it like a witch's curse kind of a thing? I thought it was a witch. See, that's what I thought, too, based on the trailer. It's also called The Cursed. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, there is an aspect of witchcraft there that I wish they would have gone more into. Mm-hmm. Um, but just knowing like straight up, like, oh, yeah, it's it's a werewolf, just plain, plain old werewolf. It's kind of a bummer to know that going in because I wanted to have the fun of the reveal, even if it was exactly what I thought it would be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And knowing that it's a werewolf movie and seeing that it's going to be set in 19th century Like I said, it's supposed to be France, but honestly, I mean, it's kind of tough to tell. It's it's like a rural area, you know, like out in the middle of like where rich people live. It was extra confusing because it could have easily been uh, the UK. Totally. Yeah. It could have been really anywhere in Western Europe. Yeah. Anywhere that gets fog, which is all of us. Fog and white people. Yeah. 
So the cursed is, uh, we've got like a couple of main characters. You've got Boyd Holbrook. He plays John McBride, who's kind of our detective sort of, he's like an investigator guy, um, kind of freelance investigator. You get like some dark undertones of his past. And then you have the Laurent family, Isabel, the mother, played by Kelly Riley, Seamus, uh, the father, played by Alistair Petrie from Sex Education, which I could not stop seeing. He plays Adam's dad in Sex Ed. He's the best. And their children, Charlotte, played by Amelia Crouch, and Edward, played by Max McIntosh. All of the events are sort of centered on both the Laurent property and also the kind of like township that they've sort of staked out there in this rural France. Yeah, it's sort of a provincial sort of landlord in the true, you know, original sense of landlorddom where you would have a a lord or a nobleman, which, you know, we're coding for rich white dude yep. <laughs> and his family who have a large house and then surrounding that house is a village of people who have sprung up around it, typically most of whom are employed in some way in service to the landlord, whether that is work at his house or for his family or for his industry, you know, farming on his behalf or, you know, whatever, farming, hunting, etc., producing things that then benefit the landlord. And you, peasant, get the benefit of living on this land. You're protected. You are protected. Because we barely barely see the uh we we like hardly ever see the townspeople outside of the laurent like manor right we barely see like where they live or like what kind of situation they're in we really only see the laurent manor which is their their home and the church mm-hmm. which the church seems like it's way out in the middle of nowhere it's kind of like far away it seems like I have to travel a bit to get there. My understanding of that is that the church is sort of situated, you know, in some cases, I don't know the correct term here. Uh, I'm going to use a medieval term, which is not right for this time period. But in some instances, a fiefdom mm-hmm. would have its own church, depending mm-hmm. on how large it is. But in this case, it seems like the Laurent family... Like, they were wealthy landowners, but they were not so wealthy to have such a large town that they would have their own church. So it Mm -hmm. seemed like the church served the sort of province of several wealthy landowners Mm -hmm. in those couple of scenes where we see sort of all of the men, the noblemen and the clergymen meeting together to discuss the the werewolf problem. Yeah, so that's kind of our setting is, like, out in the middle of nowhere in France, it's rural... Not a lot of contact with the outside world. It's mostly, like, insular. John McBride is... <laughs> he He's, like, an investigator guy that ends up in this place kind of randomly. Yeah, kind of. It's, like, yeah. seedy. Like, he also knows the police. The guy that is, like, a police chief or a police constable or whatever. He knows that guy. But you never really figure out why exactly. He's just like, you're back again. Right. And the guy's like, yep, well, I, I am. I'm back here. And that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was a little weird. The, the, we're de- I think that that's going to be a um, a recurring theme of this. It's like, where was this going? Where did this come from? So, yeah. The theme of this whole movie is I want more context on everything they didn't show me and none of what they did show me. 
Exactly. Yes, I 100% agree with you on this. So I knew that this was a werewolf movie coming in. At least I knew uh, in as much as people saying this is a werewolf movie. But I almost want to argue, is it even a werewolf movie? Yeah, that's a really good point. So like, when you say werewolf movie, the creature is a werewolf. I didn't even really think that the creature was a werewolf. It's just we don't really have words to otherwise describe better what that creature was. Yeah, it's more like a like a demonic transformation yeah. creature. And then there's like some almost like pod people, tales of the body snatchers elements to yes. to the transformation. Um yeah, werewolf is being used pretty loosely in this in my opinion at least because it's not really like a big hairy wolf technically it's more like a like a shapeshifter or like what you said like a tales of the body snatchers Mm -hmm. because at least typically what i think of when i think of like a a werewolf is something that explodes out of your skin into its own form like when you think about a werewolf normally they have to shed their human skin in order to become the werewolf mm-hmm. if we talk about like american werewolf in london that's exactly how it happens the wolfman well he kind of like evolves into it it's less like skin tearing and it's like i yeah. evolve into that or i grow my hair really fast or whatever same with uh, underworld yeah. Like the werewolves in Underworld, kind of same situation, although they, they like, break their bones to get back into... True Blood was form. kind of the same way, too. Yeah. Um, but in this one, the the true form of the person, the human that's within, is preserved in this, like, weird jelly stuff inside of the monster. Amniotic sac. Yeah. Kind of. Like, it, amniotic sac, and, like, it's gross, and also... They don't turn back into themselves. Right. They are, like, forever altered by whatever's going on, whatever, like, creature, monster type thing that's happening. Um, They're altered in their brain. And there's actually a particularly disturbing scene with John McBride and all of the elders and the... They're like, we caught it. We caught the werewolf, the one of the werewolves. And John McBride's like, they're never the same. Like, they don't come back themselves. And so they have to murder this little girl. Yeah. Because she's kind of feral. It, like, turns them into being feral. Yeah. Yeah. Like, every time you see portrayals of zombie children, that's kind of what I thought of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and normally when you think of the the werewolf, too, it's like when they're in beast mode, they, you can't, can't predict or, um reason with them uh, sometimes you can but like for the most part they're like you know wild beasts and then when they turn back into themselves they like immediately snap back into what they were before but it's not like that in this at all no it's like almost a parasite or like an organism that like creates a cocoon around them and then like the jelly or whatever that they secrete like affects their brain to the point that they are never the same yeah definitely yeah it's weird. It's very weird. It's like, a, it's almost like an alien thing or I don't know, because then I'm like, can the human survive outside of the shell? Like, can they learn what? Just, okay. This is going right back into the theme. We need to know more. Uh, well, right. <laughs> and right. we're not going to get it. <laughs> no. And, and the kind of bummer of it is. Obviously, there's very little understanding on the part of the Laurent family and all of their folks about 
what this is. There's some vague legends, Mm -hmm. but they don't even want to believe it. So they're just like, we don't know. It's a wolf. Mm -hmm. But the thing that drives me up the wall about this movie is so we, we start off with the Laurence and their fellow colonizers. I'm just going to say it, um, you know, going up against a Roma community um, who has laid ancestral claim to this land. And it's sort of like, well, yeah, but you were gone and we're here now. And, you know, their solution is to murder all of these people. And of course, the curse is placed then as revenge. But literally every Roma character is murdered. So we get like next to no information about how all of this is supposed to work, which is the more interesting part of the movie. Yeah, exactly. Um, Just another example of several times that we've used this same theme on our podcast specifically, but using the pain of a culture because the reason why they have to come back is inevitably because we're in the 19th century. Roma peoples are being driven westward They're having to come back and find their ancestral lands. And these white people are like, well, we're here and we're just going to fudge this paperwork. Yeah. So, and initially they're like, oh, let's just go scare them. It's never taken more than just like us riding them down with guns for them to leave. These people are like, no, we've been driven from the homes that we were living in and we're not going to move again. And so they just kill them all. Yeah. It's kind of a chilling scene. It is. Because there's no music. Nope. That it's just gunfire and them writing people down and dragging them by their hair and killing them and stabbing them and shooting them. It's like, okay, well, this got real, real. And what, what kills me about that, too, is on the one hand, they get their revenge through the curse. But I wanted at least some of them to be around to see the revenge. Yeah. Like, get your revenge on these people and revel in it. And, exactly. And they were all gone. Yeah. And so, like, what good is the revenge if they can't witness it? Yeah. And and we started with some very, very cool um, effects. Like, mm-hmm. they turned a guy into an actual scarecrow, which I was like, holy crap. That's why I thought it was witchcraft, too, yeah, based on the trailer. Like, exactly. Creepy scarecrows. Yeah. Creepy scarecrows um, burying things. Yeah. Like, um, I really thought that it was going to go that track. And the unfortunate part of that is they let in really solid with that stuff. And then it kind of, like, petered out. Like, you yeah. never got that same sort of, like, consistent, intense, horrific, like, imagery. At least I didn't think so. No, definitely not. Because that it was, like, truly cruel, like, dudes holding down another man and turning him into a living scarecrow and then leaving him to starve to death. Yeah. At the top of a pole. Like, it's it's intense. Yeah. And then they buried the Roma woman alive, the curser, I suppose you could say. The pacing in and of itself was not very good. I was no. not a fan of the pacing of it. There were too many times when I was like, this is moving so slow. And then we just get, like, a bunch of stuff dumped all at once. And then you're like, okay... This will get me through the next slow part. But then by the end of that slow part, you're just like, please hurry up. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like, I wanted the timeline to be a little tighter, too, because at the beginning of the movie, before the Laurents go and try and chase the Roma camp off, they make a big show of the Roma woman, the cursor, 
asking for silver for the man uh-huh. to bring silver the man who eventually became the scarecrow she says hey bring me some silver we need to we need i, I don't know if she says we need to make the teeth but we i think she says we need to make them again yeah or something, something like that like that and then we have this long sequence of her melting down the silver and then them being used to cast this like gnarly looking set of metal teeth and then the man is like carving runes into them and protect spells of protection or spells of curse curses i guess not spells of curse but curses and then the laurents come and it's like did you know was this a proactive thing right right i am interested in how these were created but also why now like why wouldn't you already have those things together or I didn't, I didn't know if it was like a storytelling tactic where they're like, this is actually what happened way beforehand. And this is where these teeth came from. If it was, they did not make that clear at all. Yeah. I'm just like, okay, is she having some sort of premonition? But they don't even allude to that a tiny bit. No, not at all. That they're, because they're like, you know, kind of settled in. Yeah. And like, we don't really have any other things to tell us otherwise. So very strange. Like it was sort of off-putting that they would do it in that order and not use that as a flashback. Yeah. Well, and speaking of off-putting, I should just make a note here because uh, this really drove me crazy about the movie. Um, the use of the G word slur for Roma people oh, yeah. over and over and over again. Yeah really bummed me out like we can make movies in 2021 2022 and we can you know aside from all of the things they did wrong you know sort of portraying the suffering of people and you know and not really showing any benefit to them or any benefit of revenge like on a very very basic level like come on yeah we can make movies even in a historical context without using slurs for a group of people. Yep. Like, we have to get over this. Like what I was mentioning earlier, this is another example of something that really happened to Roma people. Right. They were really driven across Europe and out of their homelands and then not given ancestral claim to the lands that they owned and murdered on a large scale and never really, like, accepted into any one particular part without, like, you know, years and years of struggle and hardcore negotiation and stuff like that and we have another movie based off of that where we get like 50 maybe not even 15 minutes like five minutes worth of you know roma like representation at all and then the rest of it's about white people right exactly <laughs> it's like exactly okay, another example of this exact same thing happening yeah i think that we can get more creative definitely with movies and Truly, if you wanted to do the whole curse thing, and I think this is why I keep coming back to the witches thing, just make it about witches or about people of a non-specific race or ethnicity that just live apart from the rest of society without racializing them or, or making them part of a particular historic ethnic group that is so closely associated with what I would put up as genocide. Yes. Um... Just make it a group of mixed race people who are living separate from society because they choose to and the rest of society doesn't understand it and have it play out that way. It does not need to be, you know, a persecuted group. No. And that makes you feel, especially if you're like looking at a movie through our eyes, 
and not getting the sort of satisfaction that you would expect from that, it really makes a movie feel lame. <laughs> it does. It makes it feel really phoned in. Like, yeah. it's kind of lazy writing to me. And and I, I hate it when people throw up, well, it's historically accurate. Like, you're making a movie about werewolves. How historically accurate is it really? It, that's just lazy to me. Like, you can be much more creative with like, ooh, why are these people living apart from everybody else? Mm-hmm. Like, make it up. Make your own thing. I totally thought that's the way that they were going to go with this movie. Yeah. Is like, somebody has to be the... Because they talk about being protectors of the land. And I thought that they meant protectors of these beasts, too. Like, yeah. Like, protectors of the creatures that also roam the land. And then those creatures were the ones. And it was like, nope. They got cursed and that's about it. Yeah. And that's a really good point. When they were talking about being protectors of the land, there were so many scenes in the forest. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and I was like, ooh, is part of this magic sort of magic of the forest and of the earth and of the land? Like, that would at least get me kind of interested and engaged in it again. And no, it was just, we're just going to make a little boy a little amniotic sack werewolf. Also, I think there's something to be said about a movie where you have your cast of bad guys and the the family of the bad guys that, I mean, maybe don't deserve to be cursed or, you know, have bad stuff happen to them. But then to have the movie make you root for them or want them to survive towards the end, it's like... Y'all, y'all did this to yourself, though. Exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. I know that you're mad at these creatures and this curse, but you should be looking at your dad or uh, your landlord or whatever. Like, he's well, the one who did this. That would have required them to give any of the women characters, very specifically, uh, any shred of substance whatsoever beyond their roles as wife, daughter, housemaid. Tear into it. Oh, God. I mean, the women were just nothing. They were nothing beyond their roles adjacent to the men in the story. And they set up the beginning with a flashback with Charlotte, the daughter, and that didn't pan out. Charlotte was, like, the most nothing character of all of them. That was so confusing. Yeah. To take it back a little bit, we start this movie off with World War I. With, like, a big battle. I think it's in Belgium. It's a huge battle. It's the second movie that we watched that week that started out with a World War One flashback. <laughs> Which is a very odd coincidence, by the way. Yeah, like, because we, we didn't go to see any war movies this yeah, week, no. that week. Um, so it was weird. I was like, that's weird. Yeah. Okay. It must be in vogue. But we start out with this whole sequence and this guy who's, like, trying to be a hero And he gets shot. And then we go to this hospital, this, like, trenches hospital, and everybody's screaming and dying and getting their legs sawed off and stuff. And you're like, oh, this is, this is crappy. And this guy's getting ready to die. And he's saying something in French, I think. Mm -hmm. He was. Um, And so nobody can understand him. And they're like, what is he saying? Or maybe it's vice versa. I can't remember. But he got shot multiple times. So they're trying to pull the bullets out. And then they pull out one extra bullet that is special. And it's very obviously something that you have to pay attention to. But uh, to spoil it, it's a silver bullet. Right. So I'm thinking, like, once we get this whole setup, I'm like, oh, they're going to take the silver bullet out. And this time he's going to turn right back into oh, the yeah. wolf. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's going to he's gonna sit up Undertaker style and just yeah. tear into everybody. That's exactly what I was thinking. So that's like the start of the movie. But then 
Then you see the sister go back to this huge manor, Charlotte. And then Charlotte's like, how is he doing? And the maid's like, huh, he's not doing very well, but you can go see him. And then she has this flashback. And that's when we're like taken back to this time when all of this stuff goes down. But (laughs) the women in this movie are only a conveyance. Oh, yeah. To get somebody from point A to point B Mm -hmm. or to be sacrificial lambs. Mm -hmm. That's literally the only point of these women in the movie. Yeah. And it's such a shame because between the Roma woman, like very specifically, and you could do this with either Charlotte or the housemaid, Anais, um, the Roma woman, the mother, and Charlotte or Anais, you had the three, the maiden, mother, and crone. And they could have done something so cool with that. Like, oh, you know, no, no. It was such a missed opportunity. Such a missed opportunity. And I felt like we were on the cusp of getting more interesting stuff about Charlotte and about, um, what was her name? Isabel. Isabel. I thought we were right on the cusp of getting more interesting stuff about them multiple times. Like, there's a time when Charlotte's hiding under the bed. And I was like, they're going to say something like, Charlotte's in on this stuff. She, like, caused the curse or she knew about this stuff that was going to happen. Something never happens. Same with Isabel. I thought, like, okay, she's going to do something crazy or she has some sort of knowledge about this stuff. Because there were so many times when it looked like she's about to say something. And then she didn't. Yeah. But it wasn't for any other reason aside from her husband sucks and doesn't love her. Yeah. (laughs) Like, the the whole movie is just a, is, like, this anti-love story about how this marriage is, like, falling apart and they don't even like one another anymore. And all they do is yell at one another. Yeah. It's like, and there's never any payout for that. It's like, why is this even a story thing? No. And with Isabel, like... (sighs) There's a lot of stereotypical things, but I would have even accepted the stereotypical, like, she was sneaking out of the house to bring food to the Roma camp, or Mm -hmm. she was meeting with the Roma elder woman to get, like, um, herbs to induce abortion, or, like, anything. And it felt like they were right there, and they just never got there with her. Like, she could have had something yeah and shit nothing well we had to have um scenes of uh john mcbride (laughs) doing whatever it is that he was doing diet johnny depp and from hell (laughs) (laughs) it really does look like him like yeah i feel like the the costume designer was like you ever seen from hell and they're like say no more yeah (laughs) we'll make him look exactly like that but there is so much happening with his story too but it was too much. I don't care about this incidental character. Right, right. But the things that you are talking about is not stuff that we need to know about in order to make this character effective. We should know only why you're here specifically, what your pedigree is, like what why yeah. you're here and what gives you the right to be here. And also what happened to your family, because that's clearly something that's important to him. But we don't need... 30 minutes about it. No, we don't. Scattered throughout the movie. Like, he was not an interesting enough character, nor an important enough one, to warrant that level of exposition about him in service of his story alone, and then leave out everybody else. Right. It was lame. Yeah. It's odd for a movie with so few main characters 
it felt like they had too many characters. <laughs> yeah. Because no one had, you know, typically that's a problem in a film is you have too many characters. So you're trying to focus on too many storylines. Like you're trying to make too many people the main character mm-hmm. uh, rather than focusing on like one or two. And this movie didn't have that many main characters, but it still fell victim to that where I'm like, I don't know who I'm supposed to root for <laughs> or who I'm supposed to care about, but none of them have like fully fleshed out personalities or backstories or anything so i'm kind of not rooting for anybody and i really i I didn't care about anybody like i was just like yeah i hope the werewolves kill them all (laughs) i mean the kids but they're like two-dimensional i mean Uh, one-dimensional really like the mom totally one-dimensional all the help completely one-dimensional and the kids never get a chance to like really be kids so and I feel like I'm the type of person where I will bend over backwards to try and make a movie make sense. And I give movies a ton of leeway. And this one, I was just like, I can't. Yeah. I don't know what exactly it was. The other thing is the way that they referred to the dad, Seamus, they kept calling him the brutal land baron. And I was like, he didn't do anything that was brutal. He was a coward. Like, he made all of his men go out and do all yeah. of the dirty work. Like, the day that they went to murder the Roma camp, like, all of his men just, like, rode down this hill, talked with them for a minute, and then shot them all. And he just watched. Right. He didn't commit any acts of brutality himself. He was just the, the commander. Yeah. Which is a form of brutality, certainly. But again, like something they could have explored is you have this person with this obvious control complex and this person who has this reputation of brutality who's really quite impotent mm-hmm. throughout a lot of the movie. And again, so much more could have been done with that and with his reaction to what was happening And they kind of never got there with it. Like, there was never a moment where he... There were a couple of moments where he was sort of poised to rise up. Mm -hmm. And then they never got the opportunity to have him have that moment of he's poised to rise up and he's unable to. Or he breaks down or anything. It was always like, he's poised to rise up, but then something else happens and we're just moving on from that moment. It's like they could never finish moments. No, yeah. He, just like everybody else in this movie, felt very one-dimensional and, like, just not a character that you care about. You're just like, oh, he's so evil. But he's not, like, he doesn't even give you that vibe. Like, he commanded an evil thing to be done, and then the rest of the time he's just kind of like, meh. (laughs) He wasn't a satisfying villain at all. He was just, like, another, (laughs) another mediocre white guy yeah quite frankly absolutely like mediocre is the one adjective i would use to describe this dude like not a good husband nope. not a good landowner not a good father not a good investigator like not like none of those things like he not a good apology like he's he didn't do a good job of apologizing later on like mm-hmm. he just he wasn't like scary or mean enough to make him a good villain he had no redemption arc. There was nothing really to redeem. Like, ugh, just for him to be one of the main characters of the movie, it was just like, and I know that that guy is a great oh, actor. Oh, he's a fantastic actor. They just gave him nothing to work with. Yeah, it was just like, meh. <laughs> it was very one-toned yeah. for him. So it just, meh. I just, 
was not moved. I did not feel like he was brutal or like any particular adjective aside from mediocre. It's interesting because people often want to paint, like, for example, this sort of more traditional monster movies. And I just completely disagree with this. They want to paint them as being too simplistic. Like, there are a lot of people that are like, oh, well, it's hard to make a good remake or a good update of The Wolfman, for Mm -hmm. example, because it's such a simple story. And I'm like, have you seen The Wolfman? (laughs) Like, have you watched Lon Chaney? play Larry Talbot. Like, there's so much there. There's so many layers to that character. Write a better movie. Right, exactly. Like, this, the werewolf thing, I think, is very frequently not really the villain or the monster of a movie. It's incidental to exposing who the real monster is or who the real villain is. Look at American Werewolf in London. Like, he's not really a bad guy. Like, he didn't want to get turned into a werewolf. He certainly right. wasn't expecting that. But also, like, he is experiencing hallucinations and, like, he needs help, but nobody will give him help in his form. So it's really incidental. The wolf is great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but being a werewolf is normally incidental to the story. And I would say that that is the case in this one if it had any sort of story to be incidental to. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It felt like a movie where it didn't really know what it wanted to be. Yeah, other than just being a pretty costume drama, which is a problem sometimes when you have these, like, you know, beautifully shot, beautifully costumed, you know, in a beautiful manner, in a beautiful European place, like, Making a pretty film doesn't mask that. Sorry, y'all. Um, but I think sometimes audiences even will give a film a pass for having very little story because, oh, it was so, you know, atmospheric. And I'm mm-hmm. using air quotes there. And certainly, like, I love a good atmospheric film, but it, you know, this the atmosphere better contribute to the story and vice versa mm-hmm. for it to be a truly effective film. It can't just look good. Yeah, I mean... A good example of that would be The Witch. Yeah. Um, The Witch was very atmospheric. It was a period horror movie. But I think that that one had a tone and stuck with it. Yeah. And, like, had a really clear villain and a clear redemption arc. And our character gets some sort of, like, closure or satisfaction towards the end. I want to go back to John McBride for a minute. He is... The only name I wrote down in my notes. <laughs> That's the, the Before I read this IMDb page, did not remember a single character's name. Could not have told you anybody except for John McBride. Mm-hmm. So he is the only character I felt like in the entire movie that felt like a real person. Oh, yeah. Like, not a single other person. Not the kids, not the help, not the family. Nobody else, with the exception of the Roma people, but they're only in it for like you know, three minutes. John McBride felt like the only real person that actually exists in life. Mm-hmm. Nobody else. They all felt like cyborgs. <laughs> yeah. And I wonder if the point was to make him kind of the audience proxy where he can travel within this sort of world of wealth that is obviously not his world, mm-hmm. but he can move through it with a certain amount of ease, and yet he's still the outsider. So I think he's supposed to be our proxy. 
again, I want to know more about him. I want him to be more relatable than he was, but he was certainly of all of the characters. He had the most hints at depth. Yeah, yeah. And to continue on with him, sort of a fast forward through the movie, young Laurent boy, he becomes a werewolf. He's dis- he's gone for like days, which that was like <laughs> right. such a weird thing where you're like, so you're just cool with your kid being gone for like a, a while? And the dad's just like, he'll be fine. He'll come back. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I don't think so, Bo. There are no <laughs> cell phones. <laughs> yeah, there's no cell phones. There's no trackers. You live next to a gigantic, like, foggy wood. Like, what's going to happen here? But he eventually, and I'll come back to this part of it, but he eventually gets trapped in this church and shot with the silver bullet. And John McBride has sussed out that the silver bullet is what turns them back into real people somehow. And to fast forward to the end, the son is the one on the battlefield right? who has the silver bullet removed, but then he's just dead. Yeah. Yeah. And Charlotte is going to visit John McBride at their home because he has adopted the two of them because both of her parents die in the course of this whole thing. And <laughs> we're like, what? So the the whole story arc of this, the end of this is just... The son dies, and then we watch the dad, the adopted dad, die too? How does this make any sense? How does this wraparound work at all? I don't know. And there was definitely implied a sort of like, the werewolf is dead, and now I may die thing. But I'm like, were were you concerned that he was going to transform at some point? Because that was very unclear. Like, we've shot him with the silver bullet. He is no longer a werewolf and maybe he's a little messed up, but he's, you know, a kid again. But there was never like a, and we'll have to keep our eye on this young man. Like, yeah. never. But then at the end, again, all these loose threads, it, it was very much a feeling of like, the werewolf is dead and now my work is done. Let me die. <laughs> you know? Which made okay. no sense. It was like, why does this wraparound even exist at all. It didn't need it. Because you're sort of guessing throughout the course of the movie who is going to be the one that has the bullet. But you can pretty generally figure out who it's going to be based off of their age and the fact that they do show a date for World War One, and then they show a date, I think it's like 20-something or 30-something years before. Yeah. So you can pretty quickly suss out who's going to be the one that's getting the... Because you can see the age of the dude that they're pulling the bullets out of. Like, right. He's not an old, old man. He's like, you know, 30s or 40s man. It made no sense to have that. It almost would have made more sense if they did not have that wraparound. Oh, yeah. I think absolutely. Just to have isolated it in that time... And the end could have been John taking the children away and just leave it at the kind of, is the kid okay? Is the curse really over? Just leave it kind of nebulous. Like that would have been a more satisfying ending as opposed to the dissatisfaction of the ending, which was everyone was waiting for adult Edward to sit up and to transform and to wreak havoc on the hospital. And it, and it didn't happen. I wanted that so Me bad too. I like I I thought for sure that that's what they were yeah. going to do with it. Was like, oh, they took the silver bullet out. Now he's just going to snap back into being a werewolf, mm-hmm. and it's going to be insane. No, or like they cover him with the sheet, and then all of a sudden, like he grips the table yeah. or he sits up or something. <laughs> I was like 
waiting with bated breath yeah, for that same. to happen. And then it just... It did not happen. It was so disappointing. And the whole dad dying thing, too, like, it just didn't feel special to me or no. tender or important. I'll kind of rewind a little bit. Before all this goes down, before John McBride, like, adopts these kids... Seamus self-immolates. He sets himself on fire because he's like, I have really boned this up, y'all. I'm just going to go ahead and set myself on fire and peace out. And it's like, cool, so you're just going to leave your wife who clearly has no, like, you have not allowed her to, like, develop any skills of, you know, being able to exist in real life. You're just going to set yourself on fire? He's like, tell my kids I said sorry. Like, okay. Like, no, thank you. So brutal. He was so cowardly. To tell his men to go and murder this whole tribe of semi-defenseless Roma people. And then he's just like, okay, well, I'm out, guys. Yeah. I messed up. Sorry. Yeah. Whoops. Gonna go burn myself to death. And then the mom being like the whole, like, I I will hold on to my werewolf son so that John McBride can shoot (sighs) through me to kill him. Or to, you know, hit him with a bullet or whatever. Did not feel endearing whatsoever. No, not at all. Did not feel like I wanted to be more, like, I, I didn't feel more sympathetic to her. No. At all. No, not at all. It was not a good ploy to, like, make her more likable. Well, no, because she was barely a person through the whole movie, so you can't have somebody who's been barely a person have a big, dramatic self-sacrificing moment and expect the audience to suddenly feel something for them when we're just like, you know, this person is a glorified background player. There's nothing. I did not understand that whole flex at all. Like the, the whole, like I have to hold on to him. I was like, if John McBride was just a better shot, like just be a better shot. Right. Just don't, it just felt so like. It would feel more believable if he busted out like some straight up like sniper marksman skills. (laughs) You know, like I would believe that more if he just straight up was just like and got him rather than this whole, I have to hold him now. Yeah. It's like, okay, but you've shot. Like, the, the backstory of John McBride is that his wife and child were murdered by another one of these werewolves. Which, that's also kind of a question that I had coming out of this movie is, like, so was it this one Roma tribe that's, like, cursing all these people? Or does every Roma tribe have silver teeth that they... Like, we don't <laughs> all ever All valid questions. I, I just didn't feel like there was a solid answer for any of that. No. And the other thing I wanted to know that we never got... So John McBride's family dies. Are we supposed to view him as being the redeemed version of Seamus? Mm-hmm. Was he a horrible landowner who wronged people and was set upon by revenge? Or was his family more akin to all of the innocents mm-hmm. in the Laurent's purview who got slaughtered? simply by living adjacent to this horrible person. I mean, that is not made clear. And to me, that's kind of an important distinction about his motivations Mm -hmm. for doing what he's doing. Yeah, for sure. Because he definitely seems like a willing, uh, willing, a person who is willing to sacrifice himself in in the hopes that he can put this all to bed or put it to rest. But the way that the curse comes upon these people is that Everybody, which here's another thing. I got to say this before I forget this train of thought. Everybody in this village is having these nightmares. 
of the, like, the kids are having them. I totally forgot about this. Right? Okay. <laughs> so the everybody in this village is having nightmares about the Scarecrow Man. But it's also, like, part of the nightmare is also um, the Roma woman, like, being either buried alive and then rising from the dead or um, the Scarecrow Man coming down. It's, like, some variation of them. They're all having this dream over and over again. And the reason why they're having that is because the Roma woman woman was buried with those teeth. And so this little boy, this group of kids goes out there and this little boy digs up the teeth. He puts them in his mouth and then he bites uh, Edward. And then that's how the curse gets spread to Edward. Is he gets but bitten that by that kid isn't cursed. Exactly. <laughs> so that's number one. Number two. The dad and the mom don't know what's going on, but they are also having these nightmares. Right. What? Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, the mom pretends like she and the, both Isabel and Seamus both pretend like they have no idea what's happening. But later, Seamus says that he's been having these nightmares. I'm like, so who's lying? Right. <laughs> like, right. are you having these nightmares? Do you understand? Or are you not having these crazy nightmares? Because these, these would be really, really bad nightmares to have. Oh, yeah. They're pretty scary. But it made no sense to me. Like, okay, are y'all in on this? Are you not? What? Yeah. <laughs> it, it was suspect. Yeah. Also, do the nightmares end if the werewolf is killed? Or are we meant to believe that John McBride still suffers from nightmares, that Charlotte still suffers mm-hmm. from nightmares, that her brother does. like That would be so much more interesting to yeah. know. So I'm just, like, the pedigree of these werewolves was, like, something that I wanted answered that we never really got a clear answer for. Like, so John McBride's family was at the same situation where, like, he murdered a, a, Roma, a tribe of Roma, or a camp of Roma people, and then they were, like... They also buried their silver teeth and another little kid grabbed it. Like, what? Many questions. So many questions. I, I'm like, and does this curse endure? So if if someone else were to settle on this land and find the teeth out in the woods, would they then be cursed? Is the curse only on the people or is the curse on the land itself? I I don't... I have many questions. And, like, the little kid who ended up digging up the teeth, like, totally blacked out and didn't remember biting Edward. But later he ends up, like, being mauled by the wolf anyways, or by, by the creature. The one thing I did like, and I thought was pretty crunchy about this movie that I can definitely get behind, is their reason why Silver is Wolfsbane. Mm-hmm. So... I didn't think about it like this and, like, I was participating on a message board on Facebook and they were talking about this movie specifically. And I was like, I don't really get the whole silver thing. And somebody was like, oh, no, I thought it was really cool that they, like, the reason why werewolves are susceptible to silver is because of Judas's betrayal of Jesus with the, I think it's like 30 pieces. Yes, 30 pieces of silver. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's why he's susceptible. I'm like, okay. Okay, can get down with that. Like, mm-hmm. I do like 
having a reasoning behind why silver is, you know, why werewolves are, because so many movies are just like, it just is. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> they're just susceptible to silver. Like, just Werewolves don't like silver and vampires don't like garlic. Just deal. <laughs> yeah. We don't have to explain it to yeah. you. Um, same with garlic. Like, there is a historical yeah, explanation to that. <laughs> but the silver thing, that, like, it being about the silver pieces that Judas got in you know, return for betraying Jesus to the Romans. Super fascinating. I thought that was, at least I don't know of any other movie that like spells it out like that. Off the top of my head. No, I can't think of one. So I was like, that was something that they did right. Although it wasn't as like clear to me because they don't come right out and say these pieces of silver belong to Judas or they're imbued with some sort of like mystical power because Judas also received silver. It was more just like the little kid was like, uh, he ripped that page out of the Bible about Judas um, betraying Jesus. And it mentioned silver in there. So it's kind of like, maybe that wasn't exactly what they were going for, but I did like that they alluded to that and like gave a reason why the silver was so important. It's so weird because the silver used to be in the name. And I just wonder, like, is there a different cut of this movie? Or at the very least, I mean, certainly scripts go through iterations. Like, I wonder if there's a different iteration of the script that goes way more into the mythological end of things. I would love that. I would love that so much. (laughs) It seemed like there was so much there that they could have done stuff with, but they just... Like, they'd be like, okay, cool, we're going to take this exit. Nope, just kidding, we're going to stay on this boring highway. Mm-hmm. There's so many things, seeds of, like, really interesting stuff that could have evolved into something really, like, that had depth and cultural awareness and a good revenge story. But then it's like, okay, well, this guy killed all these Roma people and his family are also, like, wealthy landowners and they just live in this giant house. But you should feel bad for them because yeah, their kid's a werewolf. Bad. Their kid's a werewolf and he turns back into a human. But that ending just felt, like, so kind of... For a movie that started out so strong with, like, so much really good visceral imagery and, like, could have had a really good redemption arc, it's just like, well... The kid died because he was in World War One and he got shot and uh, Edward and Charlotte like visited John McBride as he was dying because he adopted them. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Like, okay. Sure. Am I, yes. do I feel bad? Like now Charlotte's a rich kid, like yeah. a rich woman. What? <laughs> I don't know. I just don't know how to feel about it. A darker ending actually would have been better. If Edward hadn't survived. Yes, absolutely. The sins of the father yep. passing on to the, yep. the son. Absolutely. Which it happened a little bit, but then it just stopped. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, I don't know. Sometimes when I come out of a movie, I do like to be like, I don't even know what to think. This was not like that in a good no, way. No, same. Yeah. I just was not, I wasn't down with it. I wanted to be. I love a werewolf movie. I love a creature feature. Another thing that took me out of it was the CGI was kind of bad. The practical effects were really good. The CGI was like, they didn't have enough money yeah. to keep doing this. And I don't think it did very well domestically. No. It, I mean, it was a Sundance movie in the first place, but I think it cost a lot and it did not do very well. Yeah, it honestly surprises me that it did decently well in the festival circuit. Because I'm like, what are 
what are people seeing in this that I'm not seeing? Because I am just seeing all of the places where the story felt totally flat. And like, is it that thing where people are just seeing the atmosphere? They're just seeing like atmosphere and pretty costumes and things like that, which it had. It totally had that. But like, oh, God, you know, that in absence of a good story, like, I will skip that. Thank you. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Okay, so next time, next episode, we're going to do a streaming original, which we're going to do sometimes because that's the world that we live in now. That is how we roll as movie fans. It's a Hulu streaming original, which is interesting because Hulu's been doing a lot of like somewhat good, some really good, some bad (laughs) horror movies lately. They've, uh, I think they um, teamed up with Blum for a little bit, but it's called We Need to Do Something. And it's actually based off of a book. And I have met the author one time. Oh, cool. Uh, um, it was just like randomly. And before we ever did this and before I ever knew that this movie was even based off of a book, it's called We Need to Do Something. The author is Max Booth the Third. So if you're interested in reading the book beforehand, I haven't read the book myself, but they have a tendency to be pretty short. So yeah, we're going to do that one next time. I'm pretty excited. Excellent. I'm excited. This will be a first watch for me. Woo. So uh, we'll all be along for this ride. Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com, Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and on Twitter at FinalGirlsPod. Our theme music is by House Ghost and available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And tell your friends about us. I'm Julia. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Stay scary.